My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Well, I'd like you to stand as we recite our passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, and uh, we'll begin our time together. So let's read it together. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Let me pray. God, thank you for your Bible, your word. It is a message that has been delivered throughout the ages for us, even today, right here in this room. If we're watching online, your word is alive. And those are your words to us. So speak to us. May we respond with a heart that says yes to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. You know, that passage of scripture is so important because it brings up the point that sometimes we need to be corrected, right? Sometimes our heavenly father needs to speak truth in our life and say, you've gone astray. He does it out of love. He does it out of care and concern. He sees where we're going and he cares for us. The Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, his disciple Timothy, and said, I think, some really startling, even sobering, scary words. And he said this. He said, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences, and as a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. Wow, man, that's like right out of the gate. He's writing Timothy. He's writing the letter. He goes, Timothy, as a church leader, as a pastor, as a disciple maker, as someone that people are looking up to, I'm writing to you because I love you and I care for you, but I got a warning for you. And that warning is watch. Watch out that you don't fall prey to the deception of your own heart. Make sure that you keep your conscience, your inner world clean, pure. Don't violate it. Don't sear it, but to keep it clean. Uh, my son Noah is working back on the guitar. He, he's at home right now. And, um, and you know, he, he 
practices guitar. Anybody that's ever practiced guitar knows that you get calluses on your fingers. That's kind of cool. It hurts, right? They bleed sometimes. But you've got to build up calluses on your fingers so you can learn to play. And my adage to him is, you know, calluses are really good on your fingers. They're really bad on your heart, (laughs) but good on your fingers. Paul is saying to Timothy, make sure you don't callous your heart to truth. And the warning is people have shipwrecked their faith. And that's pretty serious, right? It's like, come on, Paul, that's, isn't that over the top? I mean, but that's a beautiful metaphor. It's a warning metaphor that some people, because they continued, repeated in actions that were not the actions that God wanted for them, over time ruined their faith. And so this is a warning for everyone here. This is a warning for me as I stand up here. Every one of us in this room could fall prey to that. We could all shipwreck our faith if we don't stay clean and clear with God. And today I want to talk about that because that might seem like, you know, that's a big thing and maybe that's over the top and a little, you know, sensationalized. But I've been a believer in Jesus Christ for 43 years. And I've been a pastor for 34 years, youth pastor, senior pastor. And I want to tell you this, one of the hardest things to see as we shepherd people is people that started out of the gate so well, out of the running block, and they're running, and they're doing just a great job. And they get distracted, maybe they get defeated, and all of a sudden, their heart begins to waver. And internally, you don't know what's going on, but externally, you see and you know something's happening. And one day, they just blow up their faith. And I'm I'm just going to tell you, I've seen it far more than I ever wanted to see it. People that were leaders in churches, people that, you know, were just people, regular attenders. None of us, hear me, friends, I love you, but none of us are immune to shipwrecking our faith. It can happen. And Paul's warning that it will happen if we don't keep our consciences clear, if we don't submit our lives to God's spirit on the everyday moment. I I know that seems pretty heavy right now. In fact, I wanna share just a story of illustration from the life of Solomon. Pastor Paul did a great job the last couple of weeks talking about Solomon's wisdom and how he listened to God and then how he wrote about all this wisdom. But I wanna talk about his foolishness how he didn't do what he wrote, how he failed to live up to the standards that he wrote in his writings that are now God's word for you and for me. And as a result, he shipwrecked his faith. And I would just say this. So no matter where you are, no matter who you are, watching online, I don't know if you're watching today or 10 years from now, I'll say this. None of us are immune. And if you think you are, you're a perfect candidate for shipwrecking your faith. You're thinking, okay, that's really extreme. Well, let me give you an illustration. Imagine that I want to leave Portland, and I've I've got a sailboat, and I want to sail to Tokyo. Okay, it's about just over 4,000 nautical miles. And I launch out there, and I get out there, and let's say that my instrumentation is just a little bit off. Let's just say it's one degree off. If I leave Portland and head to Tokyo, and my instrumentation is one degree off, will I make it to Tokyo? I won't even make it to Japan, okay? I'll hit mainland China, maybe North Korea. You know, you'll never hear from me again. You know, we'll be in Southeast Malaysia. I don't know, but I won't hit my target. Or let's say I hop on a plane and the pilot takes off and the instrumentation is a little wonky and we're just one degree off. Will we land at Tokyo International? No, we'll fall into the sea. One degree is nothing. It's just nothing, it's just one degree. 
But over time, over distance, it's a lot. It's a lot. One decision in a day, probably not a very big decision, right? But over time, that's a huge decision. One, uh, this one doesn't matter. Uh, okay, maybe that doesn't matter. It's just a small compromise. But over time, see, you and I, we're creatures of habit. And we do things that out of habit become habitual, become more, we call them addictions. And I guarantee you that we all could fall prey to this. Well, today I want to talk about this, but I want to do this uh, in relationship to this big idea I want to share with you right now. And it's this. There's a major disconnection between where people want to end up and the paths they choose in life. There's a major disconnection between where we want to go and where we end up. Why? Well, um, as a pastor, I've married a lot of people, and I love standing at the altar and marrying people. And yet, I have married people that one day, they call me and somebody's committed adultery, and it ends in divorce. Nobody ever imagined that when they were saying their vows, right? I've sat with people who've gone through Financial Peace University, have gotten clean and gotten clear, they paid off their debt, and then years down the road, they're $60,000, $80,000 in consumer debt. It wasn't just one charge. It was a pattern of charges, of buying things needlessly and foolishly. I've sat with people who have had the greatest desire to stay pure and clean and have ended up in prison because of the things they've seen and they've done. None of us are immune to it, but how does it happen? Well, let me give you a, a silly one, but it's an illustration. I know I need to lose weight. I, I would love to lose about 20 pounds. But then the other day, Oreo showed up at our house. <laughs> need I say more? Because there was milk in the refrigerator. And that's like a lethal combination. So I only had one the first day. <laughs> I shouldn't have had one, but it was only one Oreo, right? I mean, come on. It was beautiful, okay? And, and, and then the next day I had three. And then thank the Lord they were gone after that, okay? Because that's just how it is. I have a desire. I have a great desire. But then I have to do the daily discipline that I'm really poor at sometimes. In any area of life, if we're not careful, the great desire we have will fall apart by the daily decisions that we make. And I think there's a great disconnect between what we want to do and where we end up. And I want to talk about that in the life of Solomon, an amazing king, the wisest guy to ever live on the planet. Uh, we had so many things going for him. And God showed up twice to him. I'd, I'd take once, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, man, I'd never turn away if God just showed up once and spoke to me. Um, but that's what we think. But I want to look at the life of Solomon, and I want to look at four statements we could make that are illustrated in his life that will take us off course, that will shipwreck our faith. And you probably were, uh, were given one of those sermon notes when you came in because there's a whole lot of Bible text that we're going to go through, but I'd encourage you to get those. They're online as well because I want to take a look at these statements. And the four statements we make on the way to like a spiritual shipwreck and blowing up our faith, number one is this, it could never happen to me. And I know that's what some of us are thinking right now. Hey, gosh, I'm a pastor. Some days I think that. <laughs> could never happen to me. I mean, after all, fill in the blank. I'm, I do, I serve. It would never happen to me. You know, the Bible says that pride goes before a fall, and that's a very proud statement to make, that it will never happen to me. The Apostle Paul said, 
in our vernacular, but by the grace of God, go I. When he said that I discipline myself, I beat my body to make it my slave, lest I too be disqualified. Now, if the apostle Paul warned himself, man, friends, we got to warn ourselves. And we can't ever say it could never happen to me. We need the body of believers, men and women around us, surrounding us, holding us, encouraging us toward accountability, right? Because if we ever get to the point where it could never happen to me, man, we are just like ripe for a fall. Let me illustrate that in the life of Solomon. Okay, so a lot of text here I want to go through, but I want to show it this way. First of all, it says this, God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. That's what Paul preached about. It's awesome, right? It's amazing. In fact, his wisdom exceeded that of all the wise men of the East and the wise men of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite and the sons of Mahal, Heman, Calcol, and Darda. His fame spread throughout all the surrounding nations. Isn't that cool? I mean, can you imagine if you were so wise, everybody came to listen to you? Not just the Queen of Sheba, but everybody. They're like, I just want to sit underneath your wisdom. In fact, he was so prolific in his wisdom, it says here that he composed some 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. This guy is amazing. He's like Lennon and McCartney, right? You know, it's like so much comes out. Unbelievable. And you'd think a guy that for us wrote parts of the Bible could never blow it. Well, that's just not the case. In fact, let's continue on. It says here, he could speak with authority about all kinds of plants from the great cedar of Lebanon to the tiny hyssop that grows from cracks in a wall. He could also speak about animals, birds, small creatures, and fish. And kings from every nation sent their ambassadors to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. That's an amazing guy. And if anybody could have said, it could never happen to me, Solomon could have said that. And everybody would have said, of course, it could never happen to you. You're the best of the best, right? You've got the most wisdom. Everybody wants to soak up what you know. And the way you say it is amazing. But that would be believing a lie. Because none of us are immune to the lies in our own hearts. A few chapters later, it says this. It says, so King Solomon became richer and wiser than any other king on the earth. People from every nation came to consult with him and to hear the wisdom God had given him. I mean, everybody wanted to give him. In fact, you'll read in the scriptures, everybody wanted to come and just throw money at him. <laughs> That'd be kind of an awesome job, right? You know, people love you so much, they just bring gold to you. It's like, hey, uh, what, what do we got? This is all the riches of our kingdom. These are the animals. These are the things. We just want to present them to you because we are so in awe of you as a leader. We've never seen anyone like you. It, it could never happen to a guy like that, right? Well, so we think. And it says this, he finished the temple of God. This is kind of cool. Solomon finished all his work on the temple of the Lord. This, at his time and, and, and later at Jesus' time as it's reconstructed, this is the largest temple, the largest temple to one God. The largest temple to one God. There were a lot of temples, but there are a lot of gods. This is the largest temple to one God. Everybody came to marvel at the temple, the gold, the cedar, the beauty of it. It's just massive. It's magnificent. And he finished that. And then he brought all the gifts his father David had dedicated, the silver, the gold, all the various articles, and he stored them in the treasuries of the Lord's temple. This guy had everything going for him. He was wise, he was rich, he was sought after, and he did all this stuff for God. How could a guy like that fall? I mean, it, after all, it could have never happened to him until it did, but it didn't happen overnight. He slowly drifted away from God. 
and he shipwrecked his faith. Uh, there's another statement that's often made. They build on one another, and it's simply this. It's only one. Because if it could never happen to me, that's fine. But, but this, this is just one time. We're just going to make one of these. It's just one Oreo, right, in, in my life. It's just one. We often deceive ourselves because it can happen to us, and so we just go, it's just one. Here's a couple of thoughts on this. Look at the life of Solomon. He says this. It says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. And, and I'm, I'm sure she was beautiful, okay? I'm sure she was just gorgeous, but that's not the reason he married her. He brought her to live in the city of David until he could finish building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city. As Pastor Paul preached about this a couple weeks ago, you know, even though he had a listening heart, he didn't listen to the scriptures that were already prepared and presented to him that he, as a king, was supposed to know. He was supposed to recite. He was supposed to read through it. He was supposed to be the greatest teacher of it. Not a priest, but the greatest one who knew the law as he read and recited it. But he made an alliance with Pharaoh. Why? Well, just clearly I'll say because he didn't trust in God. He trusted in the chariots and the horses of Egypt over his God. You know, that, that seems pretty extreme, right? Well, when you think about it, geographically, Egypt is the most powerful nation on the earth. It comes and goes, but it's the most powerful nation and it borders Israel. And so if, if anybody is to be afraid, it's the little Israelites over this massive kingdom, this major nation that has so many monuments to its glory and its gods. And so it makes sense that you would go form an agreement and a pact, and that's how you would do it. You would marry the daughter of a king or a pharaoh. Why? Because if daddy's little girl is in trouble, daddy's bringing all the forces, right? And he did that. But here's the thing. He didn't just do that one time. He did it over and over and over again. In the, in the word of God before this, prior to this, the words of Moses, it says clearly they're not supposed to do this, and yet he did it. I mean, if you could show up at Moses the night, I mean, uh, Solomon, the night before the wedding, and you were to hang out there, and you, you would know, you know, ancient Hebrew and could hang out with him, and, and you could say, hey, Solomon, why are you doing this? Well, because it makes tactical sense. I want to see God build a great nation here, and it would be wise for me to make peace with my enemies or potential enemies. Yeah, but did you read this part of Moses' words? Did you read this about the, what God said? Don't do this. Because yeah, but 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 you don't you don't sit on the throne that I sit on. You don't know the pressures I face. You don't know this is just one. Come on, guys, we do that all the time, right? We rationalize our decisions by saying it's just one porn site. It's just one drink of alcohol. It's just one time I stole from my boss. It's just one time that I cut a corner. It's just one time, because that's all it's going to be, right? No, it's never just one. It's never just one. Well, we think we're pretty smart. And, and I, I would say this, because I fall prey to this too. Sometimes I think we're smarter or we think we're smarter than God. Don't we do that? I mean, let's just be honest. In our culture today, don't we look at what God says in his written word and then we look around at the cultural waters we're swimming in and go, yeah, but that's kind of old. That's kind of outdated. That's kind of narrow. That's kind of fill in the blank. 
And I don't think we'd be accepted if we said that or if we talked about that. And God's standards of sexuality and God's standards of purity and God's standards where he wants us to be a peculiar people, not like weird peculiar, some of us are, but like different peculiar, we're to stand out as a holy people, a holy nation in, in the world that would look at us and see difference, maybe accept it, maybe reject it. But don't we sometimes look at that and go, I, I, don't, I don't think that applies anymore. I think this is what it means. Let's reinterpret it based on our culture. The church does that all the time. It's just one, that's all. It's just never gonna happen to me, it's just one, right? Well, if we go on, I think we get to this one where we say it this way, I can handle it. I mean, hey, I can stop drinking anytime. I stopped five times this week. It's great, right? <laughs> I ate one Oreo, I stopped. Next day I ate three and I stopped. I stopped twice. Isn't that great? Give me some credit, I stopped. I can handle it. You don't know the pressures I'm going through. You don't know the pain in my life. You do not know all that's happened to me. And I deserve this because this will help me right now. And I could stop anytime. I can handle this. Friends, we can't handle this. It's called an idol that we put as first place in our life and it's an addiction. And man, for this we have Jesus, right? And for this we have AA, and for this we have Sunrise Church and our small groups, our accountability groups, our mentoring groups, men and women. For this we have each other because we all, we all think that we can stop until we can't. Let's go back to Solomon, see how this played out in his life. In Deuteronomy 17, long before Solomon, this is what God says. The king must not build up a large stable of horses for himself or send his people to Egypt to buy horses. For the Lord has told you, you must never return to Egypt. Now, if you wanted to create a scorecard, you could put three boxes and three statements. And you're seeing it right here. The first one, not a lot of horses. Not because God's not an equestrian. It's, horses are beautiful. It's just horses represent power and military might, especially tied to a chariot, an iron chariot at that day and age. Check box one, not a lot of horses. Check box two, the king must also not take many wives for himself. I've often wondered, why didn't he just say, just take one wife? <laughs> many wives for himself, okay? All right. Uh, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. Now, that is not a misogynist statement. That's not a patriarchal condemnation of women. That's the reality that the reason kings married foreign women of royal descent was for protection, not necessary for love. And they would always come and bring their gods and their customs. And that's why God says that he's not to marry. He's supposed to marry a Hebrew woman. So checkbox two, not a lot of wives from other territories, right? And he must not accumulate large amounts of wealth in silver or gold for himself. Checkbox three. So if you want to score your king, you got three checkboxes, right? He can handle it. It's not a big deal, right? Well, how, how did it go for Solomon? If you've finished your reading for today, you know how it went. Okay. It didn't go well. In fact, the guy's batting a thousand, three for three failures, right? Let me just read a couple of these. Look at this. It says, Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and how many horses? 1,200. Is that many? I think that qualifies as many. Okay. All right. Not, not to take many horses. 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities. He had cities specifically for this. Some near him in Jerusalem. Ah, it, it's just one, right? I can handle it. It's not a big deal, right? Okay, it goes on to say this. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, see, it wasn't just one. 
He married women from Moab, Amnon, Edom, Sidon, and from many of the Hittites. These are the nations that opposed God's people, that God said were your enemies and you're not to intermarry with them, or you will bring their gods and goddesses into your heart, and you can't do that. The Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. Yet Solomon, check this out, insisted. He insisted on loving them anyway. <laughs> I don't even know how to calculate this. It's funny even to read it. He had how many wives? 700 wives. Now, Mary Beth, I said this in the first service, so full confession here. I've got one wife. That's enough because I'm more than she can handle, right? That's like, this is like, man, praise God, 26 years here. I don't want another, right? I want that one. 700 wives. And, and then as if that's not enough, because it's not, obviously. How many concubines? 300. Now, for the younger people in the room and the youth pastors, a concubine is someone who you get to have sex with that you're not legally married to, and it's kind of like a freebie, and you have no obligations to. Like, wow, this guy was, this guy was unbelievable. A thousand women, a thousand women, he was, he's got a harem, right? What, what did the Lord say? Not many wives. This guy blew through that one. The next one, let's just see. Next little checkbox. Oh, it says, in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. And, and this is the saddest part. We're going to see more detail in a minute. In Solomon's old age, they did turn his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord as God, as his father David had been. We'll see more in a bit. Let's go on. Let's look at the money. Each year, Solomon received about <coughs> how many tons? 25 tons of gold. Now, just stop. I did the math for you. I did the exchange. All right. 25 tons of gold today, sold today, is $1,392,839,583. Every year, over a billion dollars was flowing into his coffers. This did not include, because that's not enough, the additional revenue he received from the merchants and traders, all the kings of Arabia, and the governors of the land. How many horses? 12,000. How many women? A thousand. How much money? A billion. He blew through all those. And it ruined his faith. It ruined his life. Solomon, even though he was incredibly wise, ended up being incredibly foolish because he didn't obey the simple words of God because he was above that or he thought himself above it, just like you and I do, right? I mean, it's not a billion dollars and a thousand wives and 1,200, 12,000 horses, but it's something, right? It's something that probably we keep hidden inside that we don't let other people see uh, until it can't be kept hidden inside and then everybody sees, right? I think it finally leads to the last statement, and this is really from the life of Solomon. I'm just going to do it anyway. I know God says this, but come on. That's ridiculous. God doesn't know my desire. God doesn't know my impulse. God doesn't know my wish. God doesn't know what I think would fulfill me and complete me. God doesn't understand, so I'm just going to blow through all the stops, and I'm going to do it because this is the best thing for me. I want freedom, to which God says actually gives you slavery. What do you do with something like that? 
from it could never happen to me. Look at how bad it got for Solomon. It says here, Solomon worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. A little, little side note here. Molech, and one of the aspects of worshiping Molech was sacrificing your children to the fires. I mean, think about that. We have abortion in our country, okay? It's a horrible atrocity, all right? Babies dying. These are moms and dads willingly taking their babies and throwing them into the fire as a way to worship this God. And we see that this is one of the ways Solomon worshiped. I mean, he had a thousand women, right? There are some children listed in the scripture, but you gotta know he had a lot more. How does a guy get from listening to the heartbeat of God, humbly asking for wisdom, seeing God appear twice, and then throwing babies into the fire? One decision at a time, friends, just like all of these. Is this way Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, this place later becomes a, a kind of like a sacred place for Jesus. It's where he spent time with his disciples. It's where he slept at night. One day he'll return there, right just outside the city, the next hill over. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. We, we credit Solomon with building the temple. He actually built a lot of temples. Yahweh was just the first one, right? Look, look at this. It just keeps getting worse. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. How did we get there? How, how did he possibly get there? How did he rationalize that? Again, if you would have woken him up at night, the night before this first bad decision, said, Solomon, Solomon, I know you got visited by God. That's awesome, but I'm from the future. Okay, this is pretty, I'm back to the future. Okay, this is pretty awesome. Um, let me show you my DeLorean. And then I wanna show you the words of the rest of the Bible that you're not gonna live out yet, but you will. He would have said, there's no way. There's no way. But in, eventually it was the way that he walked. How do you get there? Well, let me use an illustration one of my mentors uh, used years ago when I was in college. He said, it's like heart medicine. Or maybe it's not heart medicine. Maybe it's um, maybe a mental illness. Maybe you're bipolar. You've got some wrestlings and struggles. And you take a regular medication. And we thank God for those medications. And rightly prescribed, those are really good for us. And you take this medication. Let's say it's a heart medication. And you've had some issues. Maybe you've had a stroke. Maybe you've had a heart attack. You have to take this medicine. And you take this medicine. You take it. You're taking it for a long time. You're feeling great. And then you forget to fill the prescription, right? And then uh, you, you think, but why would I want to refill this prescription? I feel great. And so you stop taking it. And the next day you wake up and you're awesome, right? And the next day and the next day and the next day and everything's good and you think, I think I know better than this doctor. I don't need to keep wasting money at the pharmacy. I'm just gonna throw this away because I'm fine. You know what happens, right? One day you're not fine. Because we know medicine takes a while to get into our system and it can take a while to get out of our system, right? And that prescription that doctor gave you was for your health and your good. And you just abandon it because you just bought the lie that on the surface, everything is fine. But underneath, it's not, friends. God's word is the prescription for our soul, for our heart. 
And when we just throw it aside, nothing may happen that day or that month or even that year. But give it enough time, we will drift one degree at a time off course. You may be here and you're thinking, I know, James, it's too late for me. I'm here to tell you it's never too late. Man, in the words of that great theologian, Lenny Kravitz, it ain't over till it's over, friends. I'm telling you, God is a receiving God. He is a restoring God. He's a rebuilding God. He will return what the prophets say, the years of locusts destroyed. He will restore to you. But it only comes when we confess to him, we come to him. He's a God that he looks at your life and says, but I will do something great. Maybe some of you are here and you, you've got like marks of blowing it. You've got stories of blowing it. You're here, relationships have been broken. Your family's been broken. Your life, your business, your money, whatever. God is a God that will restore to you when you come to him. He will rebuild you and he will, he will renew you in a way that will make you better than ever before. And there will be some lingering things. There's no doubt about that. But those will be marks of beauty that God uses to lead other people to faith and strength. But it only comes when you confess, when you come clean. Because it ain't over till it's over. Finishing strong, friends, is not about finishing perfect. Because no one in this room is perfect. And I guarantee you the people watching online aren't because they're not even in the building, right? <laughs> Love you. Seriously, if we had a moment and I could sit down and tell you my struggles, man, my life has not been perfect. I've made some really big mistakes. But God is a caring heavenly father that longs to draw you back home as a son or daughter. And we're the prodigal kids that run away thinking life is better on the other side, right? And he welcomes, he runs to us and welcomes us home. You know, there's a proverb that says this, good understanding produces favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. We pick the choice, right? The way of God brings incredible favor, or the other way brings a lot of difficulty. I don't know where you're at, I don't know where your heart is, but I would say this, 95% commitment to God today is about 5% short. He wants to give you an undivided heart. In fact, that's what he wants you to give him is an undivided heart, a heart that says 100% for you, God. And I know there are Oreos in life. <laughs> I know there are people, I know there are challenges, I know there are struggles, but it always pays to do things God's way. That's my wife's addition to the sermon last night. It always pays to do things God's, God's ways because he loves us and he's heavenly father. Um, I wanna do a simple exercise. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes, but as you do so, put your hand on your heart we're not going to do the Pledge of Allegiance. That's not what we're doing. <laughs> we're doing a Pledge of an Undivided Heart to God. So close your eyes, and I just want to lead us in a prayer. And I hope it's your prayer in your heart. God, we want to give you an undivided heart. But there's something. There's someone. There's some desire. There's some pleasure that often gets first place. So God, we confess to you our failures, our sins, and we invite you to give us an undivided heart.
We want to say the words of David in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my anxious heart. See if there is any wickedness in me. And lead me on that everlasting path. Father, you love us and you desire a people that shine for you. If there's any hypocrisy, reveal it. If there's any rebellion, uncover it. If there's any just blatant sin, expose it. Do whatever it takes to draw our hearts closer to you because that's where true life is found running in the path of your commands. We pray in your name. Amen.